There was an old man who witnessed a burglary, and so he had to appear in court to testify. And the defense lawyer asked him, Did you see my client commit the burglary? Yes, the man said. I plainly saw him take the goods. The lawyer asked, This happened at night. Are you sure you saw my client commit this crime? Yes, I saw him do it, the man said. The lawyer said, You are 80 years old, and your eyesight probably is not as good as it used to be. How far can you see at night? And the man said, I can see the moon. How far is that? <laughs> well, we can have good eyesight and not be able to see things clearly, especially at night. Physical eyesight certainly has its limitations in perceiving spiritual matters. It has its limitations when it comes to knowing the things which God has freely given us. It has its limitations to experiencing all that God has prepared for us. So in our verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning at verse 9, where we left off last week, it says, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, from ages past, God has prepared some pretty fantastic things for the people who love him. Not only the things we experience on this earth, and, and then we'll experience those wonders in heaven, but we can't even imagine. But people who don't love him can't know what those things are. You see, the world, with all its quest for truth, it's always looking for truth, can't figure out what's going on. You see, there's only two ways that we can come to truth from a human point of view. From a human point of view. Only two ways that we can come to any conclusions about truth. And number one, we call this objective truth. Objective truth. And that's basically what we can see in here. Uh, it's the empirical experiential method. You might have learned that in, in science class as the, the empirical method or what they call the scientific method. And the other type of way that people can come to a knowledge of the truth from a human point of view is subjective. In others, what we can th other words, what we can think of by reason or logic, we, we think it through. That's subjective truth. Those are the only two ways that a human being can come to a conclusion concerning truth. That's all. It's either by what we call empiricism, which leads to objective truth, or it's by what is called rationalism or reason that leads to subjective truth. Now, Paul mentions both of these ways in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Here's the first one. We call it empiricism. Paul mentions things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Now, if you're going to look at objective truth or see truth objectively, there's only two ways you can assimilate that truth. Through the eye, what you see, or through the ear, what you hear. That's how you gain truth from a purely human point of view. Just the facts, ma'am. Remember that on Dragnet, that old movie? The kids are going, what? <laughs> Dragnet, just the facts, ma'am. Nothing but the facts. What did you see? What did you hear? And if you ever sit on a witness stand, those are the two questions they're basically going to ask you. What did you hear? What did you, you see? But the problem is, not all truth can pass through the eye in the ear channels. Think about the scientific method. It's totally dependent on 
what the ear and the eye can see and hear for gaining information, what can be seen and what can be heard. The scientific method is completely dependent upon what they call observation. I, I found an article that was written by a scientist to explain the scientific method to, to children. And he wrote, human beings are naturally inquisitive. So they often come up with questions about things they see and hear. Isn't that interesting? Things they see and hear. They often come up with questions about things they see or hear and often develop ideas, that's called hypotheses, about why things are the way they are. The best hypotheses lead to predictions that can be tested in various ways, making further observations about nature. That's the scientific method. It's pretty incredible to me that Isaiah, and then Paul quoting Isaiah, wrote things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard long before man even thunk up the scientific method for gaining truth. But remember, there is truth through which the human eye and the human ear cannot pass. It cannot come through that way. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. The plan of God prepared for those who love him is not observable externally. You cannot discover God through the eyes and through the ears. You can't run around and say, oh, there's God, I see him. Now I know. Nor will you hear God say, you know, there's a thunderbolt or something, you hear God speaking, hi, I'm God, here are a few instructions. It never happened. You see, it's not observable by human observation, empiricism, experiment, the scientific method, what can be observed, what we can hear, what we can see. So let's go internal. That's external. Let's go internal. The other way that men draw conclusions is by their own reason, thinking it through. We call that rationalism. The age of reason was the age of so-called enlightenment where people were coming up with all these great ideas. Again, Paul pointed to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Middle of the verse, he says, And which have not entered the heart of man. Here the heart simply means mind. Mind and heart is often used interchangeably in the scriptures. The heart and the mind are, are mean the same thing. So if you can't know it externally by what you see and hear, by what you observe, and you can't know it internally, from a subjective thought process, you can't come to God by observation, you can't come to God by rationalization. Man just can't think it up, can't think it through, come to the right conclusions. It really sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? God has a great plan for those who love him, for all that he has prepared for those. But in verse 7 of this second chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that God has hidden it. He's hidden it, verse 7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Remember, a mystery is something of the plan of God that he has now revealed. In a mystery, the hidden wisdom, hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Paul says it's not even known to the great minds of his era. He, he proved that fact by saying, if they could have known it, if they could have thought it up, if they could have understood it in Jesus' day, they wouldn't have what? Executed the Lord of glory. The best thinking of the day came to the conclusion that Jesus had to die, whether it was Jew or Gentile. 
And incidentally, everyone who keeps on rejecting Jesus now, continually, 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 proves that they just can't know the truth. They don't get it either. They can't try to find it by experiment and observation. They can't try to logic or find it by logic and, and, and reason. It, and it just can't be known that way. The wisdom of God is not discoverable by the human mind or by human experience. Well then, where does the wisdom of God come from? And this is where it gets good to those who love him. While we can't know as human beings, God freely gives to us as believers. Verse 10, verses 10 through 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul lays out the process of how God reveals his truth and his wisdom and how God reveals his, his purposes to those who love him. The hidden wisdom of God is the truth every human being needs to know in order to live a fulfilled life. This is the secret to true joy, what joy really is. It's really what everybody is searching for. Those, most people search for it in the wrong places. They don't even know what they are looking for. Remember the old song, looking for love in all the wrong places. People are looking for joy in all the wrong places, looking for fulfillment in all the wrong places. I like the way Pastor Ray Stedman put it. Pastor Ray Stedman was the pastor at Peninsula Bible Church in uh, the Bay Area for several years. He says, we don't have to hard sell this truth. It sells itself. The deep things of God are all about how to find meaning in life. How to live an effective and satisfying life. How to be set free from guilt and shame. How to overcome bitterness and resentment. How to find love, acceptance, belonging, and forgiveness. And then he says, when people realize that this secret is to be found within the walls of your church, they will break down the doors to get in. Isn't that a great statement? He says, these are the fundamental realities of God, human life in the universe. These are the lost secrets of our humanity, the permanent truths that will never pass away. So first of all, as we trace this process, we see that true wisdom is revealed by the Holy Spirit and only by the Holy Spirit. Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. God revealed. That word translated revealed is the Greek word apokalupto. Apokalupto means to, to uncover, to reveal, to disclose something that, re, that has been previously hidden. Literally, it means to unveil something that was, was veiled. We get the word apocalypse from it, which is a total misuse of the word. Because today, apocalypse and Armageddon are seen as the same thing. And Armageddon is even what people say Armageddon is. And apocalypse now, remember that movie about the Vietnam War, had nothing to do with, with apocalypto. It, the last book of the Bible is called the apocalypto of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of the last book in the, in the New Testament is to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is the unveiling, the revelation of the Lord Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He gives revelation. He reveals. He reveals what can't be discovered any other way. And so the Holy Spirit revealed this great body of truth, God's holy word. That is God's revelation. And how does the Holy Spirit do that? Look at verse 10 again, the end of the 10th verse. 
For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who knows the deep recesses of the mind of God. We can't go there. So who better to reveal God than God, the third person of the Trinity, right? Because he is God. He knows what he's thinking. The same way a, a, a man or human being says, I know what I'm thinking. You don't know what I'm thinking. I'm not going to reveal my thoughts either sometimes. And, and sometimes they come out when I don't want them to. But, uh, but the Holy Spirit knows the deep recesses of the mind of God. He penetrates the inner being of God. And the Holy Spirit pulls out of the mind of God what he wants to reveal to us. And so Paul adds in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man who is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Without the spirit of God revealing the thoughts of God, we would be totally helpless, totally clueless. But verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Underline the last part or circle it, so that we may know the things. We may know the things freely given to us by God. The Spirit of God brings the Word of God. We receive it. And then the Holy Spirit illumines it to our hearts and our minds that we might understand it. It's not the comment of men on certain acts of God. It was received from God, a gift brought by the Holy Spirit. And this is so important. And notice it was freely given. The word freely given there is basically graciously given. It's not earned. It's not worked for. It's graciously given. And then Paul continues the thought in verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Literally, it's just combining spiritual with spiritual. Paul says, I pass on this information to you, and it's not with my words. He's writing the words, he's speaking the words, but it's not his words. It's whose words? It's the Holy Spirit's words. And this is so important, because I believe that this verse teaches that the very words, the word, where I see among, where I see the word wisdom, where I see the word, whatever word it is, that particular word, that very word was given by the Holy Spirit. It's very basic. This is what we call in biblical studies the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Now, verbal doesn't mean the same as vocal. Verbal means it refers to the very words. The very words are God-breathed. And some people say, well, I believe that God inspired the general thoughts and then the writers put it in their own words. And that really doesn't make sense because it denies this verse. We speak not, Paul says emphatically, in the words which man wisdom teaches. We're not speaking to you in our own words, but words which the Holy Spirit has graciously given to us in the revelation of God. Now, this is where my mind goes with this. I can see Paul writing, sitting down to write this letter to the Corinthians. 
You know, and whether he's dictating it to a scribe or whether he's writing, he's got his lantern on, you know, lit, you know, saying as best he can. Sometimes he says, my eyesight's not very good, so that might be why he, he used a, a scribe as he told him what to write. And the Spirit of God took control of the Apostle Paul. The Spirit of God went into that guy's brain, pulled out of his brain, Words that were Paul's own vocabulary, words that were Paul's own personality, words that were out of his experience, and the Holy Spirit arranged them in the order and the exact thing that the Holy Spirit wanted to say. The very words selected by the Holy Spirit, selected out of the personality and the life of the Apostle Paul, nonetheless, they are the words of God, the words of the Holy Spirit. So far, we've been talking mostly about divine inspiration, how God, God breathed, how God, God breathed <laughs> this, this, this book, these words. This God. So now we're going to talk more about illumination. How do we get the truth from these pages, from these words, into our hearts and into our minds so we are illumined? Without the Holy Spirit, we'd not have the revelation of God's word. And without the Holy Spirit, we would not be able to accept and understand its truths. We see that in verse 14, where it takes a turn here for one verse. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or discerned. Paul uses a very descriptive word here for the word natural, the natural man. The word translated natural is psychikos. We get the word psyche from it, or the word psychology. It refers to the natural part of the man. Psychikos is literally soul. It refers to the, the soul. So it could be translated the soulish man. The natural man, the human man, the physical man, it's the man who lives in the physical world. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew equivalent to Sukkos is nephesh, nephesh. God breathed into the nostrils of Adam, and he became a living nephesh, a living soul. Now, the difficulty for some people is that nephesh is also used of animals in the Old Testament. You go, do animals have a soul? Only in the sense that they are a living creature. So it's usually translated creature in the Old Testament when it refers to, to animals. And the, but the difference between animals, their nephesh, and human beings, their nephesh, or their sukkakos, their psyche, is that human beings are not just body and soul. Human beings are what? Body, soul, and spirit. Spirit. God breathed into Adam his life. We are created in the image of God. But the problem was, when Adam sinned, he died spiritually. Remember, Satan in the garden said, surely you shall not die. You know, they said, God said, if we eat of the fruit, and Eve added, and if we touch it, we shall die. And, and Satan said, no, that, that's not going to happen. Surely you will not die. The moment they sinned, they died physically. The cells in their body began to corrupt for the very first time. But the tragedy is the moment that they sinned as well, they died spiritually. 
Their spirits were deadened to the things of God. They were separated from God. Adam became spiritually dead, and he passed down that condition to every one of his descendants. So now the natural man who had inherited his condition from Adam operates solely on the physical. So he's no really living no differently than the animals. It should not surprise us that the evolutionists tell us that we're really no different than animals other than we evolved what? Differently. Because they're operating strictly on the, the physical. Jude verse 19 says that the soulish man, the Sukkos man, is the man who is devoid of the Spirit of God. Who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He's spiritually dead. His own spirit needs to be made alive in Jesus Christ. And so the scriptures make a clear distinction between the life of the soul, that is our natural humanity, and the life of the spirit, our new spiritual humanity in Christ. God created us as threefold beings, body, soul, and spirit, and the spirit is the highest center of our humanity. Paul says that the natural man, the Sukkos man, lives on the basis of the natural, his soul, not the spirit. He cannot receive the wisdom that the Holy Spirit brings. The natural man, Paul says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. The whole realm of the secret and hidden wisdom of God is not merely a mystery to him. He doesn't even know it exists. He isn't aware of anything but the realm of the senses, what he can see, hear, feel, touch, and all those kind of things, the realm of his emotions, the realm of his human reason. He's utterly ignorant about the truths of God, and he's utterly ignorant about the realities of God that come only from the Spirit of God. And that's why the natural man misunderstands the power and purposes of God. Whatever the power and purposes of God, God's given gifts, whether it's wealth, prosperity, human sexuality, love, marriage, children, life itself. That's why greed, poverty, ignorance, selfishness, crime, racism, the physical and sexual abuse of children, pornography, homosexuality, sexually transmitted disease, abortion, and other social ills are rampant in our society. The natural man does not understand any of these things. And then they flaunt it and celebrate it for two weeks during the Olympics. Because they just don't get it. He doesn't understand himself. He doesn't understand the things of God. The reason so many people do not value human life as sacred is that the sanctity of life is a spiritually discerned truth. We are made in the image of God. And that brings sacredness to life. But the natural man cannot grasp this truth because the natural man or woman does not have the indwelling of the Spirit of God, the mighty teacher. Those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ do not have the Spirit in them, so the Bible says their minds are darkened. Lights out when it comes to the things of the Spirit of God. Without the Spirit of God, a man or woman can't know God. A man or woman can't sense God cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. You can hand him a Bible, stick it under his nose, and it doesn't make any difference. It's, it's words on a page. To him, it's man's ideas about some God thing. 
He doesn't understand it. He doesn't know what's going on. It's all foolishness. He can't know it because it's spiritually evaluated, spiritually appraised, spiritually judged, spiritually discerned. And the problem is he's spiritually dead. It's like talking to a dead person. In the 119th Psalm, the psalmist prayed a beautiful prayer. In verse 18, he prayed, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. It isn't that just God gave the law. It isn't just that he gave the word of God. He also has to open our eyes to our understanding. The spirit has to illumine our minds. Truth is available only to those who are illumined and who can understand the truth. The natural man can't handle it. He's without the Holy Spirit. He can have it in his hand. He has the revelation, the inspiration, what we call the word of God, but without illumination, it doesn't make any sense to him. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Just like a blind man can't see, he can't see the son of righteousness. Just like a deaf man can't hear sweet music, he can't appreciate the sweet song of salvation. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, Man is like a pillar of salt, like Lot's wife. He's like a log and a stone. He's like a lifeless statue which uses neither eyes nor mouth, neither senses nor heart, unless he is enlightened, converted, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So how can a man be saved? How can a man be converted? How can he understand the truths of God's word? The same Holy Spirit who gives the word of God is the one who illumines the word of God. He's the one who convicts concerning sin and righteousness. As the unbeliever, the natural man, hears the gospel proclaimed or hears you share it with him in his living room or her living room or as they read scriptures, the Holy Spirit does his work of an enlightening, converting, and regenerating. Paul wrote to Titus, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, the natural man can't know anything even if he has it right in front of him. The Holy Spirit has to open it up to him. We're going to have much more to say about that when we start talking about how, what it means to be spirit-led in evangelism. That's one of the topics we're going to cover in our, our being led by the Spirit because God is at work in the heart of the person we share our faith with. God is at work in our hearts. and I, 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 It's the same way w with preaching. I, I get before God day after day, the week before, and I study his word, and I ask God to show me, to illumine my heart, help me understand this. And then as I teach it on Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit is working on the transmission, but he's also working on the reception. Because unless the Holy Spirit works in your heart, I, I'm up here talking to nobody. <laughs> but I know that he is working in your hearts, and I'm talking not only to somebodies, but several somebodies. And I've also learned by experience, you know, I'll have people come up to me and say, Pastor, I just really appreciate what you said last Sunday. That helped me so much. And I'll say, well, what did I say? And they will say what I said. I'll go back and listen to the recording, and I never said it. <laughs> but that's what the Holy Spirit said to them. Through, you know, so as we witness to people, we also need to be aware, we need to be prepared to give an answer to the hope that's within us, but we also need to be praying for that other person that the Holy Spirit 
be working in them. It is God who shines in our hearts to give us the light and knowledge of God's glory in Christ. And this work takes place when we are saved through repentance and faith in Christ. And in contrast to the natural man, Paul then talks about the one that he literally calls the spiritual or the spiritual one. He who is spiritual. The natural man doesn't get it, but now Paul talks about the spiritual one in verse 15. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. The one who is spiritual is simply the one who is indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be spiritual, to have the Spirit of God. Not, Paul is not talking about some super saint here. Oh, she's so spiritual. Or, or those that talk like they're so spiritual and have so much, you know. We, we think of these super people. They really must have some kind of in with God or, or something like that. It, it's not some Christian who has a superior knowledge or position, but Paul is talking about every one of us. Every one of us is a believer in Jesus Christ. Everyone who has received Christ if you have received Christ, you are spiritual. And Jesus Christ has made you alive in your spirit and you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, you may not always act spiritual. And maybe I didn't a little bit ago. I was making fun of spiritual people. But, but you know, that is the problem that Paul confronts in the rest of this letter to 1 Corinthians. He tells the Corinthians in the very next chapter that they are fleshly, carnal. They act like mere men. They're acting like the natural men. They should act like spiritual men. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you do. If you have received Christ, he is the resident teacher in you. And he is the evaluator. And the Holy Spirit takes the word of God. He makes it alive. He makes it meaningful to us. And that's for all Christians. All Christians. The world doesn't know the truth. The world can't know the truth. Because the Spirit of God doesn't indwell them, but he indwells you. And on account of our new nature in Christ, Paul says a remarkable thing. He says in verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit illumines our minds and our hearts to see Christ, to experience him, to know him. That is the purpose of illumination, that it's not just a head knowledge of the Bible, but it's a heart understanding of God's word. You might remember that, the, that Jesus warned the Pharisees. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They were great students of the law of God. They searched the scriptures. They, they studied them. They, they, they tried to understand them. But Jesus says, it is these that testify of me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. There's always a danger when we come to God's word and we come to the study of God's word that we can fall into the trap of what is called dead textualism. That even as believers, it can just become words on a page that need to be processed and worked out and understood and charted and this and that and the other thing, you know, and it becomes wrangling about words, no, it means this and doesn't mean that, and, and that they're just facts that can be, to be interpreted, that's just doctrine rather than what the true purpose is. It is true that we are to study to, we are to study to show ourselves approved, approved. 
that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that doctrine, true doctrine, is essential to our faith and our godly living. We are to study God's word, but we must never forget or neglect what is the purpose. The supreme purpose is to know Jesus Christ by experience, to experience Christ, to obey Christ, to see his glory. The purpose is to genuinely grasp the wonderful things that God has for us. To grasp all that God has prepared for those who, who love him. And we need a special work of God in our lives to get a hold of those. That is the work of illumination. That is the work of God through the Holy Spirit. So it goes beyond the knowledge of history, which I love. It goes beyond the knowledge of theology, which I love. It goes beyond the knowledge of facts, which a lot of us love. It goes beyond the knowledge of doctrine, which I love. It's not just a head knowledge, but it's a heart understanding of the truth of God's word. I came across a thing this week from the, the Taylor University Center of Scripture Engagement. I was Googling something, all this thing, this thing popped up, and I go, wow, that's just really cool. And Dr. Fergus MacDonald, who's the head of this center, points out that each person of the Trinity is involved in the relational process of what he calls scripture engagement. When we come to the Holy Word and it engages us and we engage it, he says, it is the Holy Spirit who enables the text to speak for itself. When the text speaks, it is the voice of God the Father that is heard. And it is Jesus Christ who, through the text, makes a unique claim upon the readers and hearers. And then he adds, and this is really good, and it's mainly why I'm quoting him. He says, by reading God's written word, we actually find his living word, Jesus Christ. By reading God's written word, we actually find his living word, Jesus Christ. Christ. Didn't we sing that this morning? Beyond the sacred, sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. O send thy spirit now unto me, that he may touch my eyes and make me see. Show me the truth concealed within thy word and in thy book revealed. I see the Lord. I get tearful, whatever I think. I see the Lord. Illumination is not only for the mind, but it's also for the heart and for the will to experience God in Christ. I've mentioned this before, before, but on my computer, I have what's called the complete works of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was the man of God that used greatly of God in the first great awakening in the, the 18th century. And the printed book form of his writings are over 26,000 pages. 26,000 pages of his study of God's word as he's trying to put down and write down what he has learned, the insights from God's word. And tucked away in his writings, he gives us a sense of what illumination means, what it means to be spiritually enlightened. And, and in each one of his writings, He'll begin a section of his writings. They used to do this in the old days. 
they put a summary of what's going to be contained and what's written down below. And uh, those summaries are very long. They're a very long title. And one section he entitles, A True Sense of the Divine and Superlative Excellency of the Things of Religion. A Real Sense of the Excellency of God in Jesus Christ and of the work of redemption and the ways and works of God revealed in his gospel. And then he writes, There is a divine and superlative glory in these things, an excellency that is a vastly higher kind and more sublime nature than in other things, a glory greatly distinguishing them from all that is earthly and temporal. He that is spiritually enlightened, he writes, he that is spiritually enlightened truly apprehends and sees it or has a sense of it. He does not merely rationally believe that God is glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. There's not only a rational belief that God is holy and that holiness is a good thing, but there is a sense of the loveliness of God's holiness. There's not only a speculative judging that God is gracious, but a sense how amiable God is upon that account, or a sense of the beauty of the divine attribute. That's where we have to leave it there today. But let me close with this. The Apostle Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, verse 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown us or shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Well, I can see the moon. How far is that? Well, I can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. How wonderful is that? Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you open up to our minds and our hearts that we not only read about your glory, but we see your glory. That we not only understand something of your holiness, but we experience the loveliness of your holiness. Father, I pray that more and more as we continue to study your word and learn of you, that you would open up our hearts and our minds that we might see Jesus, to see him as he is, to understand what he has done for each one of us, all the things that you have prepared for us who love you. And thinking about uh, Pastor Stedman's comment about when the world, people in the world, really figure out what's going on inside these walls, Lord, as we worship and serve and study together, Father. I pray that there would be something contagious in our community that people would, through your Holy Spirit, say, I want what they got. I want to know what they know. I want to see what they are seeing. And for this we ask, in Jesus' name, amen.